let me ask you to open up in your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to use one of those provided for you uh, below the seats in front of you. You'll find our passage this morning on page 742 in those Bibles, uh, page 742 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, We were away from Daniel last week for Harvest Sunday, and after this morning, we will be away from Daniel again until January. Uh, Next Sunday, we will be in the Song of Solomon for our Lord's Supper service. Uh, Then on December 11th, uh, we have a special guest coming uh, to preach for us. Alex DePrima is a young man uh, leading a church plant in Winston-Salem beginning in 2017. And so he's going to come and he's going to preach to us in the morning service on December 11th. And then he's going to share with us about that church plant uh, in the evening service on December 11th. And then the last two Sundays of the month, uh, we will have a uh, a two-week Christmas series uh, entitled Listening to Angels. So the plan this morning is to close out uh, Daniel chapter 4 and our time with King Nebuchadnezzar. In 2017, in January, we'll begin Daniel chapter 5 and there will be new kings for us to meet. Uh, King Belshazzar and King Darius. One of my favorite places to visit is King's Dominion in Doswell, Virginia. Uh, I remember going there as a child, so it has kind of sentimental value to me. I I remember riding the Rebel Yell with my parents and with my uncle and the big drops of that roller coaster. It's now older. Uh, It's not as impressive as it used to be, um, but I I used to love King's Dominion and still do. Now they have the Intimidator, which is awesome. It's intense. It's a 305-foot drop and uh, a very cool roller coaster. King's Dominion got its name from its sister park, King's Island, which is in Ohio, and the state of Virginia's nickname, Old Dominion. So they put those together, King's Island, Old Dominion, and came up with King's Dominion. What does that word dominion mean? Uh, Here in our passage this morning, Nebuchadnezzar is going to speak of God's dominion. And frankly, this word captures the heart of what the entire book of Daniel is about. So what does this word dominion mean? Well, our English word comes from the Latin dominus, meaning master or lord. And many people think that the game of dominoes uh, came from this word because the first person to play all his dominoes is the, the master of the game, the lord of the game, the, the winner, the dominus, the dominator, which is also a roller coaster at King's Dominion, interestingly. Uh, that idea captures the Hebrew word accurately. To have dominion is to rule, it is to reign, uh, it is to exercise sovereignty. And in our passage this morning, we find the most powerful man in the ancient world in the 6th century B.C. 
proclaiming the dominion of one who is higher than himself, the true God. So look with me at verses 34 through 37. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, last time we were in Daniel 4, we saw how God humbled proud Nebuchadnezzar. But this morning, our focus is on the declaration of praise which came from Nebuchadnezzar's lips. Our focus this morning is on the sovereignty, the, the reign, the dominion of God. And I have six points, and then we're going to draw out a few implications. So we're going to move quickly. Six points about God's dominion. Here we go. Number one, we have in our passage the fact of God's dominion, the fact of God's dominion. We see in this passage that Daniel's God, the true God, the God most high, exercises real dominion over this world. God is on his throne and nothing happens in this world apart from his sovereign will. Dear Christian, this truly is your father's world. He owns it. He rules over it. And all is being worked according to his sovereign purposes. Sometimes things may seem like they are out of control, but we have the assurance that they are not. A.W. Pink says this, The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purposes, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among all the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. 
And such is the God of the Bible. I like to define God's sovereignty this way. God's sovereignty is his right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, with any part of his creation for any purpose he chooses. Is that clear? (laughs) The sovereignty of God is his right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, with any part of his creation for any purpose he chooses. Or as Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So we have the fact of God's dominion taught here in our passage. But our passage goes further. It also tells us the length of God's dominion. So this is our second point, the length of God's dominion. It says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Throughout the history of the world, people have lived under the dominion of rulers and kings. Sometimes those rulers were wicked men and people longed for the day that their rule would end. They they prayed that God would strike the king dead to, to rid them of the tyrant that ruled them all. But there have been other rulers who were truly good men. And people truly meant it when they said, long live the king. They loved their king. He was a a good king. But whether rulers are good or bad, their reigns always come to an end. Human dominion is always temporary dominion. It is a short-lived dominion. But God's reign over this world is forever. King Nebuchadnezzar certainly longed that mighty Babylon would last long after his time had come. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered so many peoples. He had built so many structures. He had implemented so many laws. And yet, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, Babylon would only last a few decades before it was overtaken by the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was a short-lived kingdom. But God's kingdom, God's rule over this world endures from generation to generation to generation. Think about this. We, we think about four years of a president or eight years of a president and, and to us sometimes that seems like a long time. Friends, when Adam walked the earth, God reigned over it. And when Moses was walking the earth, God reigned over it. When Jesus was walking the earth, God reigned over it. When Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor of Europe, guess who was reigning over the earth? When Napoleon seemed to conquer the whole world, there was still one who was reigning over him. When your great-great-grandparents lived in this world, God reigned. And right now, God reigns. And if Jesus tarries another 10 trillion years before he comes back, guess who will be reigning every single day of those 10 trillion years? God's dominion endures from generation to generation to generation. 
And then, of course, God has a kingdom that will outlast this fallen world. God has a people that he has called to himself. God has a church, an assembly of the redeemed. And even after this world as we know it is destroyed, even after this earth has been baptized in fire and made new, God's people will dwell in his kingdom under his supreme authority forever. Friends, there simply has never been a dominion like God's dominion. Certainly a few years as president is absolutely nothing. It is a a microscopic dot on the timeline of God's eternal rule. So we have the length of God's dominion. But if that's not astounding enough, our passage gives us a third point. The scope of God's dominion. The scope. For you see, God's authority reaches to places that no earthly authority can go. Our God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. The host of heaven. God reigns not just over human subjects, but over armies of angels. There are creatures in heaven that you and I know very little about. Cherubim and seraphim. These are strange, unusual, mysterious creatures. But they bow to the sovereign rule of God. There are myriads and myriads of angels. And angels are powerful, spiritual, intelligent beings who exist to serve God and His good plan. Nebuchadnezzar had authority over thousands and thousands of people. Nebuchadnezzar had no authority over angels. He had no authority over heavenly creatures. Notice also that the scope of God's dominion includes all the inhabitants of the earth. People say that Alexander the Great conquered the world. But when you look at what he actually conquered... Oh, there were many, many people outside of his authority. People say Napoleon conquered the world. But when you look at the map of what he actually conquered, oh, there were more people outside of his authority than under his authority. But God's dominion includes all the inhabitants of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar ruled the inhabitants of Babylon. God reigned over the planet and does. Asian, African, Australian, European, American, no matter where you might close your eyes and point to on the map, if there are people there, they are under God's decrees. Even the most hardened atheist who rebels against God cannot get away from the fact that he is under God's sovereign sway and under God's decreed laws. Laws of mathematics come from the very throne of God. The scientific laws that govern this world come from God's mighty right hand. And yes, those moral laws for which each of us will give an account on the last day are issued by the Most High God. No human being will ever be able to claim that they are outside of God's jurisdiction. His authority extends to everyone. 
So we have the fact of God's dominion. We have the length of God's dominion, the scope of God's dominion. Number four, the strength of God's dominion. The strength of God's dominion. (laughs) Never has there been a king like this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our U.S. presidents, they may think they have a lot of power, but there is so much that legally they cannot do on their own. And even the great Roman emperors who thought they had so much power in practice, they only had as much power as they had men to enforce the rules. But this God does whatever he pleases, anywhere and with anyone. He is omnipotent. That is, he has all strength. All power in the world is ultimately God's power. All might in the universe, including the strength that you have to keep your heart beating this moment, is actually God's strength being worked in and through you. There is no power or might or strength in the universe that is not actually his. Compared to God, all the inhabitants of the earth, with all of the willpower and all of the warfare they can muster, are still counted as nothing. There are currently around 7.4 billion people on the planet. And there are millions of guns, billions of sharp knives, and other instruments of violence. There are nine countries that possess nuclear warheads, totaling more than 15,000 nuclear weapons in all. Consider what one knife can do to you. Consider what one automatic rifle can do to you and to all of us in this room. Consider what one nuclear weapon would do to our community. Mankind has the ability to destroy itself. Mankind has astounding, far-reaching, terrible potential to wreak havoc and to wreak harm. Fidel Castro died this weekend. Why were we so afraid of Fidel Castro? Why was he such a a thorn in the flesh of the U.S. for so long? Because of the threat of what could happen and the thousands that could die. And yet with all of our ability to destroy the human race with our own weapons, we cannot even make God stub his toe. God is in absolutely no danger from us. No harm can come to the God of heaven. Indeed, when you take all of the human race of every time period and put them all together with all of our greatest thinkers and our greatest inventors and our greatest everything, and you put them all together, God accounts them as nothing compared to himself. Certainly our strength is nothing compared to his because even our strength comes from him. And he can take it away from us at a moment. One word from God and all of us in this room would become motionless statues. What is really amazing is when we consider the ability of God to not only rule over us externally, but has there ever been a king like this who was able to do as he pleases in the hearts and minds 
of human beings. What king has there ever been that can actually reach into his subjects and turn their hearts and minds wherever he pleases? And yet God can do that. He is the potter. We are the clay. He does with us as he pleases. Even mighty Nebuchadnezzar was putty in the hands of God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar makes the statement that none can stay his hand. And this may be no more than a simple statement that no one has strength enough to disrupt what God has willed. What God chooses to do, he does, period. But the word in Hebrew literally means to strike. And some think that this comes from the practice of striking a child's hand when they've done something wrong. Parents, you've probably done this. And all of us have probably had it done to us as children. When a parent slaps a child's hand, it's a quick but sharp way of saying they've done something wrong and they shouldn't do it again. And if this is what Nebuchadnezzar is referring to, he's not only saying that God can do whatever he pleases, he's also saying that none of us have any right to say that God is being unjust. We cannot slap God's hands as if he has done something wrong, nor can we accuse God saying, what have you done? Why? Because we're the clay and he is the potter. And the potter has the right to do with his clay whatever he wills. God has rights that you and I do not have. God has a kind of rights that are higher and even more important than the rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. We have human rights. God has creator rights. And his creator rights includes the right to take a Babylonian king and make him eat grass like an ox for years. If he wills to do so. God's creator rights include the rights to bring happy days into our lives. But also sorrowful days into our lives. God's creator rights means that he has the right to give you a hundred years. Or to bring you to your death at 55 years old. Or 35 years old. Or five days old. His dominion is absolute. Number five, all of this would be quite terrifying if this God is a reckless God or worse, an evil God. So it is really encouraging that what we also see in this passage is the character of God's dominion. The character of God's dominion. And we find it in verse 37 where King Nebuchadnezzar proclaims all his works are right and his ways are just. Our God is the greatest king of all, the one king of which all others are but partial shadows. Our God has limitless dominion, and he uses it entirely, 100%, for good. For good. He wields his immeasurable power for the welfare of his people, For you, dear Christian, for your eternal security, your eternal blessedness, your eternal joy. 
God wields his immeasurable power that his glory may be better seen and savored and loved by his children. Since you and I were created to find our greatest pleasure in God, what God does for his glory, he is always also doing for our good. Now some of his decrees are pleasant, and some of his decrees are painful. But in the end, they're always just and right. They're always good. Now I want to make one more point before drawing out a few implications. I want us to see the king of God's dominion. The king of God's dominion. For you see, as incredible as it is to think about, God has taken this absolute dominion, this eternal dominion, this limitless dominion over the universe, and he has given it to a man to a God-man, to Jesus Christ. Here's Mary, a teenage girl. Uh, we don't know what she was doing when the ga- angel Gabriel came to her, but, but Gabriel appears, and listen to what Gabriel tells Mary. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The astounding truth of Christmas is that the sovereign God of the universe became a helpless baby in an animal's manger. The Son of God the second person of the Trinity, lived as a true man, died for sinners, and rose from the dead, and now as simultaneously both creator and creature, as both deity and human, Jesus Christ has received from his Father the throne, this dominion, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Almighty God, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The king whose dominion lasts from generation to generation without end, to whom all the peoples are accounted as nothing, is the man who wept when his friend Lazarus died. The ruler whose authority extends even to the angels of heaven as well as the inhabitants of the earth is one who has known what it is to be hungry and to be sick and to face even death. The great potentate before whom the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing made himself nothing in order to ransom people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Mount Hermon, the king whose rule is marked by righteousness and justice is your good shepherd, the lamb of God, your bridegroom, the lover of your soul. We're not just talking here about the king. We are talking about your king, your husband king, your protector king, your provider king. The king of God's dominion is his son. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
Three quick implications. Three quick implications. Here we go. Number one. What a perilous thing to have this God against you. Unbelievers in this room, I am speaking now directly to you. Children, teenagers, adults who have not called out on Christ, who are not living with faith in Him, I I am speaking to you. I want you to hear what I am saying. If you are still in your sin this morning, then this God of absolute dominion and limitless power is not your God. He is against you. Because of your sin. Since this God is against you, what refuge will you turn to? Because frankly, it does not matter if every person on planet earth is for you if this God is against you. When this God is against you, you are in grave trouble. Maybe in this life you're healthy. Maybe you're wealthy. Maybe you're popular. But dear friend, all of your health and popularity and riches won't matter one bit when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All that will matter is that you have broken the laws of the Most High God. On the day of judgment, you will be exposed like the rest of us as the cosmic criminal that you are. And then... A just wrath from God that is higher than the mountains and deeper than the oceans is going to come upon you. Indeed, just as God is using His authority to work all things to bring His children safely into heaven, He is simultaneously working all things to make sure that the wicked find their place in hell. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, your day of retribution is coming. Unbelieving friend, when God is against you, ultimately everything is against you. Because there's no place you can run to. There's no place you can hide. Your day of condemnation is inevitable. You're counting down the days, the hours, the the minutes. Every tick of the clock is a tick closer to your eternity in hell. Every tick. Every second that passes. You're closer to hell now than you were when this service started. Your eternal suffering will soon begin. And your only hope is to be reconciled to this God. Your only hope is that a peace can be made between you and the God you've offended. Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment for sinners. When we believe on Jesus Christ, we are justified, made right with God. That is, our sins are forgiven. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. It is through faith in Jesus that our sins are washed away and we are made right with the Father. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can you have God for you and not against you? Turn from your sins. Stop being against God. Rather, you be for Him. You trust Him, love Him, look to Him, follow Him. 
Turn to God by trusting Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the first implication. And for unbelievers in this room, it's the most important thing. Second implication. This is directed mainly to Christians. What a wondrous thing to have this God for you. What a wondrous thing. What a wonderful reality to have the God who holds all things in his hands and works all things as he pleases as your God. And not just as your God, but as your loving, caring, tender Father. Dear Christian, you are dear to the heart of God. He knows every hair on your head. You are part of the bride of His dear Son. His great love envelops you. His great love governs all your days. Sometimes you may walk through life thinking that you just have a cloud. You ever seen the cartoons and there's the cloud with the rain and the lightning that just follows you around wherever you go? Sometimes that's how it feels. But in reality, we have the love of God over our heads everywhere we go, working all for our eternal good. What gave David the courage to go out against Goliath with nothing but a sling and five stones? What gave Daniel and his friends the strength to stand when the entire powers of Babylon were against them? What caused the apostles to go on preaching and teaching though they were daily in danger of imprisonment and were being hunted down? All of these trusted in the Lord their God. They knew who was on the throne. And that's where they found their strength. Mount Hermon, God has built a fortress around each of his children. It is the fortress of his decree. He has decreed from eternity past that we shall be forever blessed in his heavenly kingdom. And that decree is wrapped around us like a fortress that cannot be breached. And therefore, we should not live in this world as timid, cowardly sons and daughters of God. Instead, know that you are forever protected, that everything is now your servant. And so you can give yourself to bold and unreserved obedience. Richard Sibb says there's a strange confidence that is seated in the heart of God's children that they thus dare hell and earth and all infernal powers. They set God so high in their hearts that they dare say with a spirit of confidence, who shall be against us? They may kill us, but they cannot hurt us. The worst they can do is send us to heaven and make us partakers of what we desire the most. Isn't that great? There are billions who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let a sinful, needless sense of insecurity keep you from being the witness you've been called to be. Dear Christian, fulfill your callings with bravery. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a David. Goliath may come out against you, but he is no match for you because your God is on the throne. can't God must help us believe these things and cause them to affect us I'm ending right now with the last implication whatever authority God has given to you wield it well 
wield it justly and rightly as he wields his authority. So husbands, fathers, mothers, your authority is in your home. As God is to you, so you are to be to those placed under your care. God has chosen to use his limitless power to love and to serve. What are you using your authority to do? God governs the world with justice and fairness and also with compassion and mercy. Is this how you are exercising your authority in the home? Many of you have jobs in which you have a measure of authority over other people. How are you using that authority? We as Christians are to live with courage and and security and the encouragement that God gives to us because he is over us. We are encouraged that our God is on his throne. Are the people who are under you encouraged that you are the one that has been set over them? If you are an employer or a manager, do the people who serve under you, do they thank God that you're the one that's there? Because you're good, you're just, you're fair, you're kind in the way you exercise authority. Most of all, are others seeing a glimpse of God's rule over the world in the way you oversee them? We are only a few weeks away from 2017. Isn't that staggering? We are only a few weeks away from 2017. As God gives you opportunity... Why not take some time over the next few weeks to think about the responsibilities that you know God is giving you for the next year? Pray about those responsibilities before God meditate on how you might better reflect Him in the way you fulfill those responsibilities. Living in light of His sovereign love and in light of His sovereign care, can you not care for those under you with great joy, and with great peace in your heart. Jesus is the king of God's dominion. We as Christians are one with Christ, united to him. The Bible says that in the world to come, we will reign with Christ. You will share in Christ's dominion. In that world to come, You will wield your delegated authority with wisdom and goodness and justice. But let's practice now. Let's practice now. And in that way, we can honor the God who governs us with love and goodness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.